How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He has cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel and has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up. He has not spared all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has thrown down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. In fierce anger, he has cut off all the strength of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. And he has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire, consuming round about. He has bent his bow like an enemy. He has set his right hand like an adversary and slain all that were pleasant to the eye. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his wrath like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has destroyed its strongholds and multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and moaning. And he has violently treated his tabernacle like a garden booth. He has destroyed his appointed meeting place. The Lord has caused to be forgotten the appointed feast and Sabbath in Zion. And he has despised the king and priest in the indignation of his anger. The Lord has rejected his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of an appointed feast. The Lord determined to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not restrained his hand from destroying. He has caused rampart and wall to lament. They have languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more. Also her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground. They are silent. They have thrown dust on their heads. They have girded themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. We'll end our reading there this morning. It's a, a difficult passage to read with a, with a clear an inescapable theme. Uh, verse 1 mentions the anger of God twice. Verse 2, the wrath of God. Verse 3, his fierce anger. Verse 4, he poured out his wrath. Verse 6 mentions his, the indignation of his anger. And so on. The, the passage is a real downer. If we could use that as something of a pun uh, as well. Verse 1, Israel's glory is thrown from heaven down to earth. Verse 2, thrown down to the ground. Verse 9 speaks of something being sunk into the ground. Verse 10, the elders are made to sit on the ground, their heads to the ground. Down, down. And all of this is attributed, as we saw in, verse, in, in chapter 1, in the last few weeks, uh, to God for the sin uh, of the kingdom of Judah. It's because of the people's sin, unrepentant sin. Uh, this is the wrath of God against sin. And that's a difficult doctrine for a number of reasons. It's not a doctrine that uh, sinners like or find easy to uh, talk about or think about. In fact, it's maybe the doctrine in the Bible that draws the greatest opposition and ridicule from the world. The anger of God against sin. Uh, Christopher Hitchens passed away several years ago uh, in, in his book on religion. says, nothing proves that religion is, is just made up as obviously... He says, as the sick mind that designated, that designed hell, the wrath of God. Uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, a more famous atheist in his book, The God Delusion, uh, interacts with the idea of uh, a, a judging God in this way. 
He says the God of the Bible is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, antifacidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's Richard Dawkins' assessment. But, but discomfort with God's judgment of sin is not limited to atheists or even to non, uh, people who don't identify with Christianity. There's a couple of examples. Uh, ten years ago, a, a mainline denomination in the United States was revising their hymnal, making a new hymnal. They, they came out with one ten years ago, and they came to discussing the modern hymn, In Christ Alone, which probably many of you are familiar with, a wonderful, wonderful hymn, wonderful statement of faith. Uh, and they were particularly concerned with the line that says, On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And they were proposing a change to change that to, on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Also true, uh, but, but obviously a, a, an attempt to remove any, any reference to the judgment of God. They had to ask the, for copyright permission, ask the authors of the hymn for permission to make the change, and the authors didn't give the permission, and so the, the hymn was left out of that hymnal. There can be no mention of ju- the judgment of God uh, in that modern hymnal. A well-known Eastern Orthodox scholar and philosopher, David Bentley Hart, uh, writes recently, the idea of eternal punishment is obscene and ought to cause us revulsion. And he's, he's written books against the idea and for universalism, the idea that there is no judgment of God. Every, everyone, uh, no matter what they believe or what they've done, is saved in the end. And I don't give those examples or quotations lightly. The wrath of God ought for any of us uh, to be difficult, ought to be uncomfortable uh, in, in some respects. And we cannot have all of our questions connected to that, that topic answered uh, in this life. And yet it's clearly taught in Scripture. And what I, part of what I want you to see today is that it's, it's closely, inextricably uh, linked to the love and the grace of God. Uh, his, his, ju- uh, his judgment and his, his justice. So how do we understand it? How do we understand it as it's described in this chapter here? How can we see the goodness and the redemptive purposes of God uh, even in these ten verses and in the context of the whole Bible? So I, I first, on your outline there, want to see how the wrath of God is described here against Jerusalem. And then secondly, we'll look a little deeper how we ought to understand it, how we can see his, his holiness, his faithfulness, and his love even at work, uh, even in these ten verses. So looking at number one in your outline there, uh, we can't look at every detail here in, the, in this chapter, but just a few of the descriptions uh, of God's wrath against Jerusalem. Verse one um, says that uh, he cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel. Uh, in the day of his anger. Uh, probably the idea of there of heaven to earth is um, referencing the, the privileged um, and glorious and intimate connection that Israel had with heaven, with the God of heaven. Uh, that's, that's been thrown down figuratively. It's been broken. It relates to what, uh, what is said of, uh, in verses 6 and 7 of the temple and worship in Jerusalem. Uh, he destroyed his tabernacle, it says, his meeting place. This was the, the focal point of God's relationship with his people, Israel. 
Uh, verse 6, he's caused to be forgotten the appointed feast and Sabbath. These are the great celebrations that God gave to Israel, annual and, and weekly, to celebrate his grace to them. They're not happening anymore. Um, verse 7, he's rejected his altar. That's the, the central uh, picture of his self-sacrificing grace for sinners at the temple uh, is, has ceased its function now in Jerusalem as part of this judgment. Uh, commentator Christopher Wright summarizes this is a, a picture, a shattering picture of a broken relationship. A broken relationship. Uh, the chapter also describes the physical city, verses 8 and 9, particularly in its, its defenses have been broken down, its strength. Um, verses 8 and 9 mention the wall, the ramparts, the gates, the bars, all destroyed. Uh, Jerusalem's left defenseless. And then just one other description for now. On verse 9, uh, the law is no more. Also her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughters of Zion sit on the ground. They are silent. What, what is being said here? There's, there's no word from the Lord coming to the prophets anymore. Uh, the law of God, the gracious law of God is not functioning uh, in Judah. Uh, the elders who ought to be teaching and, and uh, guiding the people, they've gone silent. What, what's the point, the summary of this? It's that God has gone silent. God is not, he's, he's withdrawn his gracious communication and guidance from Jerusalem. But secondly, let's, let's dig a little deeper and see how we should understand this anger and judgment of God, even against Jerusalem, against those he's shown his kindness to. And, and I want us to see how it is that God is so far from, say, Dawkins' description of God as a, a petty, vindictive, cult, control freak, a bully. Uh, how should we see and understand God's wrath and judgment here? So secondly, on your outline, the wrath of God has three things, three perspectives on this here. Uh, first, letter A, as a response in kind. A response in kind. Uh, look again at verses 6 and 7 and the, the uh, verbs that are used there of, of God's attitude and judgment towards Jerusalem. Forgotten, despised, rejected, abandoned, forgotten, despised, rejected, and abandoned, all those things attributed to God. And we might think, how, how can this describe a faithful and good God? But what I want you to realize is God is simply confirming in these things uh, what had already been done uh, by Israel, uh, by, by her will. And after the many pleadings and patience of God, they, they had this, this describes... What their attitude already was, they had forgotten their God. Right? They had despised his, his means of grace, the, the ways that he had given them to commune with him. Uh, they had rejected his lordship and his gracious law. Uh, they had abandoned a relationship with him. So all, all of these verbs describe whatever remained of, of the trappings of religion. The temple was still there. There were still priests doing things. They were still having feasts and food and so on. But these things describe what was already true in Israel's heart. Right? God is simply, in a sense, making outward and visible what was already true in their hearts. Uh, God's judgment here simply pictures what, what Judah's sins already were, in a sense. They had already abandoned him and despised him. Uh, verses 9 and 10 illustrate this, this aspect of God's judgment well. Uh, as well, God, again, went silent. 
Um, he broke off communication with them. But this is not just a, a fickle God throwing a fit against uh, uh, people who were crying out to him and wanting his grace. Again, it was a, it was a confirmation of what Israel had already done. Right? They had closed their ears to him and to his law. Uh, they weren't communing with him. Um, so he removed his word. There, there, are, there are warnings in all of this. There's warnings in this general principle to all of us. If you shut your ears to God... He will eventually leave you to your own blindness, your own miserable sense of direction, your own foolishness, and you will walk headlong into the judgment of God uh, forever as your own choice. Um, This, I think, is somewhat parallel to what Jesus speaks of as the the unpardonable sin. He warns of that in the Gospels. I think the idea is if if you harden yourself and harden yourself against God, at some point uh, he will simply confirm you in that hardening. Uh, Tim Keller, uh, some of you know know who that is. He passed away a few weeks ago. He, um, in one of his books, is commenting on God's final judgment of those who do not come to Christ as Lord and Savior and, and reasons this way. Keller writes, All God does in the end with people is give them what they most want, including freedom from himself. What could be more fair than that? Uh, he's, he's commenting in the same vein as, as C.S. Lewis. I think maybe a year ago or so I, con- I quoted um, this well-known uh, quote from C.S. Lewis where he says there are only two kinds of people in the world. Right? There are those who say to God, Thy will be done, and they submit to God and give their lives to Him. And then there are those to whom God says, Thy will be done. And Lewis concludes, All that are in hell chose it. And, and there's, there's more to say. There's more to God's judgment of sinners than that. But there's not less. There's not less than God leaving humans to their own choice of perverting and destroying and rejecting his good and perfect design of this world and of relationships and so on. Think of how you, in just, just in our uh, human world, the way we relate to each other, how you would view the following scenarios. Picture a beautiful building. And, and countless hours went into designing that building by architects and, and engineers and so on. And then many months went into constructing it. And then uh, much use and enjoyment was made of it by, by many people. And then an arson comes along and burns it all down. Uh, most of us would see an appropriateness, a necessity in, in response to that person recklessly destroying what was beautiful and good and useful that that person's own freedom and sense of usefulness and beauty in life would be somewhat ruined by jail time and financial consequences and so on. Or, or imagine an, you know, this kind of thing happens. An artist creates a beautiful work of art that reflects, again, what is true and beautiful and, and good and enriches society and someone comes along and ruins it with graffiti or something. Th- those things are, are parallel to, though infinitely lesser, than what sin does to God's masterpiece of creation and his perfect law, his perfect character. There's one sense in which God's judgment is is to say, if, if you want to live in a world where my good design is perverted and ruined and where the very foundations of, of goodness and satisfaction are destroyed, here you go. That's, that's what you get. A second way to see God's wrath in this chapter uh, to understand it, letter B on your outline, is a purposeful and just judgment. A purposeful and just judgment. Look at verse 8. 
Verse 8 begins, the Lord determined to destroy. And then we didn't read this this morning, but verse 17 begins, the Lord has done what he purposed. What he determined and what he purposed. My point is simply, it's not a, this is not a random, fitful surprise attack on unsuspecting and, and innocent people in Jerusalem. Uh, it pictures what sin deserves. And, and in, if we know the whole story, in God's long-suffering and patience, he warned them over and over and over of what sin deserves. That he would not allow his good and perfect design and creation to be perverted forever. It's God's prerogative, his right, his very character to punish what perverts his good purpose and creation. I want to read a little bit of the background uh, to this event from Jeremiah 18. So if you, if you turn with me to Jeremiah 18, this is before, of course, these events, before Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, Jeremiah is warning and warning and warning about this. Jeremiah 18, beginning in verse 6. This is God speaking through Jeremiah. He says, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does? So he compares himself to a potter making a, a pot out of clay. And if something goes wrong with the clay, or you know, to extend the metaphor to ridiculousness, if the clay rebelled against him, he can smash it and make something new. Right? This is God's prerogative. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy. Uh, I have that right, God is saying. It, 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 in fact, it's, it's necessary for the sake of justice, he's saying, that, that I would right what is wrong. He goes on, if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. So it, it, it pause again, it's... It's conditional. God's threatenings of judgment were always conditional. He would always relent if there was repentance and and faith put in him. He goes on. um, Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. So now then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. There's there's the warning. There's the plan. I, I will not allow injustice and evil to continue forever. And so God's plea is, O turn back, each of you, from his evil way. And reform your ways and your deeds. And God, God pleaded that over and over again. Israel knew clearly what they were choosing. And, and the very next verse describes their response. But they will say, it's hopeless. For we are going to follow our own plans. And each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. That was Israel's determined response. And so again, the fact is this chapter pictures graphically and, and brutally, what, what their sin, what, really what our sin deserves. Why is it that I'm uncomfortable with Romans chapter 1? Or why am I uncomfortable reading imprecatory psalms? Or why am I uncomfortable reading about Jesus covered in blood, riding around the earth in the book of Revelation? Why am I uncomfortable reading Lamentations chapter 2? The, the main reason, the biggest reason, is because it pictures what my sins deserve. Right? I don't want to believe that. I'm not that bad. I want 
cheaper grace, right? Some, some room for a self-willed life. Maybe I deserve a slap on the hand occasionally, but not full-sale destruction on my life. We, we desperately want to avoid the Bible's evaluation of our own sins. Now we always want, you know, in our, in our human interactions, we always want justice for ourselves, but not necessarily for God so consistently. You know, think of, the, think of the worst offense that you can imagine against you or against your family. Murder or rape or some kind of abuse. You would fight with righteous anger to protect your family and to get just punishment and justice. Right? And yet, whatever that example is, it pales in comparison with, with the offense of our sins, every one of us, against God. And imagine such an offender was given free and complete forgiveness by, by a county judge. Again, in righteous anger, you would demand that this judge be removed. That prompts the question, why are we not more offended by God's forgiveness than by His wrath? It's more consistent with the way that we interact and what we expect relative to our society. Why are we not more offended by God's forgiveness? This scene pictures the just wrath of God. It was horrible. It was real suffering. And yet we can also know it was just a taste. It was just a warning. It was not the full final judgment of God. To those Israelites who had ears to hear, who humbled themselves as many did, it was salvation to them. It was a wake-up call. It called them back to the Lord in faith. It was a saving reminder to them that there is full and final and forever judgment to come. And they were saved. And it's, it's the same for us when we read about this or, or other judgments in the Scriptures. And the Bible, the New Testament, continues to warn you if you have not repented of sin, if you've not received Jesus as your sacrifice, as your Lord, then this is some kind of taste of your future. If you're still breathing, God is warning you as he was warning Judah year after year, century after century. Your, your sins must be dealt with because God is just. God will not uh, just wave a wand of forgiveness at anyone's sins. And so you can submit to King Jesus, his death counting in your place, him receiving this in your place. Receive full forgiveness and welcome into the family of God and, and the perfect future of peace that God has for this world. Or you can choose to face that on your own. Thirdly, letter C. Uh, we should understand in this chapter here uh, the wrath of God as a fatherly chastening. A fatherly chastening, or I couldn't decide between these two headings, uh, a severe mercy. A fatherly chastening or a severe mercy. I want to zero in on this, the, the fact of this as a redemptive event for God's people. Even though we don't see a lot of that yet in chapter 2, we'll come to that much more in chapter 3 again. But it was designed not to just get rid of these people or to somehow pay them back for their rebellion against him century after century, but to call them back into fellowship with himself. And, and we, can, we can get a taste of that already here in these 10 verses in a number of ways. It, it, this description is distinctly different than, say, a description of God destroying the Babylonians in, in a chapter in Isaiah. 
Uh, one example of that is seen in the, the possessive pronouns. Right, this is his sanctuary. Uh, it's his altar, his tabernacle, as it's described here. It's against the, the gates of Jerusalem, the gates that Psalm 87 says God loves, the gates of Jerusalem. Verse 4, those who are pleasing to the eye, I think the implication is pleasing to his eye, pleasing to God's eye. These are constant reminders that they didn't cease to be his. Right? They, they, uh, this is all a wake-up call, a severe warning to those that God had loved. For those who would who would heed it and turn back to him. And that didn't diminish the severity of the experience, and we'll continue to read about that in weeks to come. Uh, verse four speaks of God bending his bow, uh, aiming his bow at Jerusalem, uh, or, or setting his right hand, raising his right hand, picturing God about to strike his own people, as it were. And then incredibly, verse five describes toward his own people, God is like an enemy. Like an adversary, it says. Again, uh, verse 4 and 5 say he is like an enemy. How do we understand that description of God? Well, there's an important, in part of that, there's an important literary distinction to make here. There are many figurative descriptions of God in the scriptures, uh, way he, ways he's described for our understanding. The Bible uses, for example, metaphors, many metaphors of God. A metaphor is a figure of speech that brings two things into identity, basically. Um, you, you, you speak of one in place of the other without explanation. Uh, so God is your shepherd. Right? He's not like a shepherd. He is your shepherd. God is your father. Um, but here, what, what's used is a simile. A, the figure of speech, a simile, uses the word like. It's also a comparison, but it's not an identity. Uh, there, there's a comparison being drawn, uh, but, but not as closely as a metaphor. And here, it's, God is said to be like an enemy for his people. He isn't an enemy, but he can look and feel like an enemy when he allows hard providences, when he allows chastening to, to call us away from sin and danger, to, to teach us to trust him more and more fully. Uh, Williams comments here, the use of a simile here indicates that this is an extraordinary posture for God to take, not his preferred one. He is the enemy of the wicked, but he can be like an enemy, even to his people, when they defy him. It, it's supposed by some that uh, a God of wrath and a God of love are incompatible. These, these two things don't go together. It's either one or the other. The reality in the, in the scriptures is that wrath, God's judgment, flows only and inescapably from his love and from his grace. Elsewhere, relative to God's people, this is, this is referred to, these, these hard things, as God's chastening to the degree that this is experienced by those who would ultimately belong to God and, and turn to him in faith. It's his fatherly chastening. It flows from his love. His refusal to let things continue in, in this direction. Rather than allowing you to become hardened to sin or to become a slave to sin or to be defiant towards Him, He confronts you with your frailty or with the consequences of your sin or with the fact that you are not in control and allows life to disappoint or even to crash down for your good. Again, our, our own parenting provides... Uh, uh, faint but but good 
uh, parallels to this. If, if your child is making bad or destructive decisions, you bring consequences. Right? Or you may be thankful later for, for pain or disappointments or struggle in their lives that were, that were used to bring them back to, to wisdom and safety or to the Lord. We read earlier from Hebrews 12, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. But it, but it has God's fatherly purposes behind it. God loves us in one sense. He loves us too much to leave us where we are, even if we're not in, in full-fledged rebellion in the sense that Israel was here, that Jerusalem was. All of us have sins that bear squeezing out We lack dependence on God. We lack appreciation for His grace, for His law, that only pain and frailty and struggle sometimes can teach. C.S. Lewis described the most painful chastening of God in our lives uh, with the phrase, uh, severe mercy. Uh, Severe mercies. And in fact, that's not from a a book of of Lewis that he wrote. It's from a a good friend of his, a close friend of his, from a, a letter that Lewis wrote uh, to him. And this is from a, uh, a book by Sheldon Van Aken. It's a, an autobiography of sorts by Sheldon Van Aken. And he tells the story of his romance and his marriage to his wife, Davy, uh, Sheldon and Davy. And they were, they were unbelievers, and yet they had a remarkable um, relationship. They were very happy, very loving. Um, they took a trip to Oxford one year. This is the mid-20th century and happened to meet C.S. Lewis, and they struck up a relationship with him, a lasting relationship, um, largely by correspondence, writing letters, and so on. And it's um, tell, the book tells a lot about that friendship, and it's through that friendship that Davy, the wife of the author, uh, came to the Lord, uh, came to faith in Christ. And Sheldon stubbornly remained distant from the Lord, and he grew increasingly bitter and jealous of his wife's new love before they, sh- they shared everything together. Uh, now the most important thing to her, uh, he did not share and would not share. And that continued until she contracted a terminal illness uh, and died. And Sheldon was devastated. They, they still had a very close and loving relationship in many ways, but he continued this writing back and forth with C.S. Lewis. And uh, through reflecting on her life and her faith, uh, and death, uh, and through Lewis's letters, he came to know the Lord himself. Uh, it's an incredible story. I highly recommend the book. The book is called A Severe Mercy, uh, which is the phrase that Lewis used in a letter uh, to describe Davy's death uh, because of the way that God used it uh, to draw him when nothing else would uh, to the Lord, uh, to, to the love that he desperately needed. I'll quote just one Line from that book, Sheldon writes, That death, so full of suffering for us both, suffering that still overwhelms my life, was yet a severe mercy, a mercy as severe as death, a severity as merciful as love. As as devastating as it was for him, God took away his greatest earthly treasure, which his his wife and his marriage was, even as an unbeliever. Uh, It drove him finally Uh, to his greatest treasure and contentment in Christ. And God here, in in what we read of in Lamentations, challenged Jerusalem severely. Uh, He challenges you and me at times with with tastes of the consequences of sin um, as a loving father so that that we would see our weakness, uh, 
so that suffering would be an opportunity for us to draw nearer to him, to rely more fully on him. We need to understand more deeply how he enters into suffering and suffers in our place, that we would understand what our sins deserve, what our sins cost on the cross. And when we're not in points of suffering like that, when we're enjoying plenty and comfort and so on, we need to read Lamentations 2, for example, and and give God thanks and remember uh, that we are weak, that we don't have control, that we're every bit as dependent on the Lord in those times uh, as those times when we really feel it. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you again for your word from uh, this book, uh, Lamentations, a uh, difficult passage to wrestle with, a uh, difficult book again. But we thank you for the, the evidences of uh, your grace and your faithfulness, uh, even through this. We thank you for the ways that we can look back on our lives in hard times and see evidences of your uh, great faithfulness and love and uh, fatherly chastening of us. Pray that we would submit to that, that reality, um, that we would be able to rejoice at all times because of it, uh, even not rejoicing in everything, uh, but always rejoicing in you. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.